Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Moloff. It looks like we're about, again, we get interrupted. Don't you love technology? It's saying we have 10 seconds left until we actually go on air. Again, I apologize. One of these days, Blog Talk Radio will get this straight. So we're going to wait. Here we go. Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Moloff. This week, the Environmental Justice Report will discuss the intersectional nature between racism and environmental justice. Okay. It's an established fact that environmental disasters negatively impact communities of color and low-income communities far more than white and affluent communities. It's no small coincidence that environmental activists are being targeted, almost environmental activists are targeted almost as viciously as Black Lives Matter activists, because again, the two groups really are working, they, they have to work hand in hand these days. So we're gonna start with something that we had talked about before, and this is basically seven environmental principles. And these principles were written back, all the way back in 1991. And these were written down and basically espoused, if you will, at the Multinational People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit, again, back in 1991. So I'm just going to read it. To quote, we, the people of color, gathered together at this Multinational People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit to begin to build a national and international movement of all peoples of color to fight the destruction and taking of our lands and communities, to hereby reestablish our spiritual interdependence to the sacredness of our Mother Earth, to respect and celebrate each of our cultures, languages, and beliefs about the natural world and our roles in healing ourselves, to ensure environmental justice, to promote economic alternatives which would contribute to the development of environmentally safe livelihoods, and to secure our political, economic, and cultural liberation that has been denied for over 500 years of colonization and oppression, resulting in the poisoning of our communities and land and the genocide of our peoples. Do affirm and adopt these principles of environmental justice. And here are the principles of environmental justice as basically uh, written by this group. One, environmental justice affirms the sacredness of Mother Earth, ecological unity, and the interdependence of all species and the right to be free from ecological destruction. Two, environmental justice demands that public policy be based on mutual respect and justice for all people, free from any form of discrimination or bias. Principle number three, environmental justice mandates the right to ethical, balanced, and responsible uses of land and renewable resources in the interest of a sustainable planet for humans and other living things. Four, Environmental justice calls for universal protection from nuclear testing, extraction, production, and disposal of toxic hazardous waste and poisons, and nuclear testing that threaten the fundamental right to clean air, land, water, and food. Environmental, uh, well, number five, environmental justice affirms the fundamental right to political, economic, cultural, and environmental self-determination of all peoples. Number six, environmental justice demands the cessation of the production of all toxins, hazardous waste, and radioactive materials 
and that all past and current producers be held strictly accountable for detoxification and the containment at the point of production. Seven, environmental justice demands the right to participate as equal partners at every level of decision-making, including needs assessment, planning, implementation, enforcement, and evaluation. Eight, environmental justice affirms the right of all workers to a safe and healthy work environment without being forced to choose between an unsafe livelihood and employment. It also affirms the right of those who work at home to be free from environmental hazards. Nine, environmental justice protects the rights of victims of environmental justice, I'm sorry, environmental justice protects the right of victims of environmental injustice to receive full compensation and reparations for damages as well as quality health care. Ten, environmental justice considers governmental acts of environmental injustice a violation of international law, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, and the United Nations Convention on Genocide. 11. Environmental justice must recognize a special legal and natural relationship of Native peoples to the U.S. government through treaties, agreements, compacts, and covenants affirming sovereignty and self-determination. 12. Environmental justice affirms the need for urban and rural ecological policies to clean up and rebuild our cities and rural areas in balance with nature, honoring the cultural integrity of all our communities and provided fair access for all to the full range of resources. 13. Environmental justice calls for the strict enforcement of principles of informed consent and a halt to the testing of experimental reproductive and medical procedures and vaccinations on people of color. 14. Environmental justice opposes the destruction, I'm sorry, 14. Environmental justice opposes the destructive operations of multinational corporations. 15. Environmental justice opposes military occupation, repression, and exploitation of lands, peoples, and cultures, and other life forms. Environmental justice calls for the education of present and future generations, which emphasizes social and environmental issues based on our experience and appreciation of our diverse cultural perspectives. And 17, environmental justice requires that we as individuals make personal and consumer choices to consume as little of Mother Earth's resources and to produce as little waste as possible and make the conscious decision to challenge and reprioritize our lifestyle to ensure the health of the natural world for present and future generations. These principles were drafted and announced, again, at the first, at the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit that was held uh, in October of 1991 in Washington, D.C., and they adopted those 17 principles. And it is truly a sad commentary that this dates back to 1991 and not only are we fighting the same battles, but the battles are far more vicious these days than they were back then. So what is it? these were people of color that said, look, we need some real justice. We need an actual platform. So when the conservatives say, well, these progressives, they don't have a platform, that's not true. That platform's right there. So, let's, so basically there, there is an intersectionality between structural or systemic racism and environmental crimes. So let's look at the intersectional 
intersectional nature of environmental justice, and let's look at how it intersects with racial injustice. The road has been long and treacherous. So Nikki Lacani in New York and Jonathan Watts in London wrote this article, and it was back it was back in um, this past June, and they talked about how the Black Lives Matter protests have really become they've morphed. It's become more of a movement, not just for racial justice, but also the growing awareness that systemic racism really does deny communities of color equal access, not only to economic and social justice issues, but also environmental and climate justice as well. And we are talking about systemic racism. So this doesn't allow for, for instance, the elevation of one individual like Barack Obama. We're talking about what communities of color go through all the time. Now we're dealing with the disparities in health outcomes with COVID-19. And you kind of wonder, what does it have to do with environmental racism? Well, it has everything to do with it. Why are more people of color dying at much higher rates in the U.S. than whites? Well, part of it is the air they breathe. Communities of color often live in urban areas where the, the air is far more polluted. They also tend to live in communities where they are not too far away from toxic waste dumps. Uh, the fact is asthma rates among people of all ages in communities of color, low-income communities of color, are far higher than the national average. And so when you put these things together, you're going to have more likely poor COVID-19 outcomes. In my hometown of St. Louis, there were, of all the COVID cases, especially in St. Louis City, the majority of them, majority of the COVID deaths were that of the, from the black community. So this is no small coincidence here. So, you know, we could question whether Trump's premeditated negligence on the COVID issue, whether it's a backdoor attempt to racially cleanse the U.S. of blacks and other minorities. It is a legitimate question. Um, and, and it's something that we need to really think about. You know, did Donald Trump not only neglect the environment, but he, did he neglect the COVID crisis and let it spread and spread misinformation in the hopes that it would be used as a tool to racially cleanse communities of color from the United States? And so we have to look at this. We have to look at how the planned negligence of the COVID response could be construed as a mechanism for racial cleansing. And according to this article, quote, the disproportionate rates of COVID-19 infection, hospitalization, and deaths are linked to lingering and persistent health, social, economic, and environmental inequities facing black Americans, conditions which are rooted in oppression, discrimination, medical apartheid, and structural racism, and which today have created a perfect storm, end quote. And that was from Peggy Shepard, who was quoted, and she's the co-founder of We Act for Environmental Justice. And she was a, she gave a press conference this past June where she made that statement. And I think it's actually very true. I think we do need to look at medical apartheid and structural racism because access to good medical care, even hospitals in St. Louis City right now, there there isn't really, well, there, there is a hospital, but it's in a tonier part of town. 
most low-income minorities don't have much access to medical care here. So let's look at background data to support this possible theory, okay? Because, again, this is an example of how environmental racism and dumping on communities of color, more pollution and so on, contributes to the COVID death rate in certain populations that can't escape it. Keep in mind, we're living in a country right now where in Manhattan, people of low income cannot escape, but you have wealthy people basically chartering helicopters about $600 a ride to go from their office in Manhattan on a daily basis to their homes in the Hamptons. All right, so this, it, it looks like it, it does. So let's look at the background data. So in the United States and the United Kingdom, there was research and it found that people of color or communities of color, like as I said before, suffer more from the result of air pollution than white residents. They often live in areas where the air quality is poorer, more urban. When that happens, that's linked to multiple respiratory and cardiovascular conditions. When you have those conditions, your increase of your your chance of dying from COVID increases greatly. So once again, you have activists that are demanding what the reforms. I wouldn't call them radical. I call them justice. Um, you know, they basically are saying that the truth about America is that racism is built into America's DNA. From the air we breathe to the water we drink to the people we put in office, and it's true. And this quote this is from some BAME climate activists. They went on to say, quote, um, this, oh, this is a quote from Robert Bullard who's distinguished professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University. He's also the co-chair of the National Black Environmental Justice Network. And Professor Bullard said the following, quote, racism is built into America's DNA. And since, and since 1619, black Americans have had to endure this violent and oppressive system. COVID-19 exposed our nation's racial divide. And he's true. And I hope that Donald Trump is listening because I know he hates the 1619 Project or anything where people are speaking truth to power. So the National Black Environmental Justice Network is one of the organizations that is trying to address the idea of environmental racism. Um, and they relaunched a pledge where they're trying to create a roadmap for, quote, a broad environmental justice agenda viewed through a racial justice lens. Okay, Bullard was quoted further as saying, quote, environmental racism kills. Air pollution and rollbacks to environmental protections and regulations make it hard for black people to breathe. At NBEJN, we are connecting the dots. And globally, this environmental justice movement um, has really called out more traditional environmental activist groups as being racially tone deaf, because in the past they have been. You have a lot of more traditional environmental groups. They worry about the extinction of a particular animal, for instance, or a certain, you know, certain breed of owl or whatever, but they're not worried about what's happening to people in low-income areas that are also suffering from environmental degradation. And so the environmental justice movement has really emerged to deal with these issues that the traditional white-dominated environmental movement has refused to consider or maybe doesn't really understand. 
And one of the things that they deal with is the disproportionate dumping of toxic waste in predominantly black neighborhoods uh, that was actually done again in the 1980s. So basically this was, let's see now, the Guardian reported in 2019 that in the U.S., they, they discovered that there was, again, a, a disproportionate amount of dumping of toxic waste in black neighborhoods, and it was part of an agenda, all right, that the Reagan administration, I guess, really allowed to happen or maybe engineered. We're not sure about that. So that is when the 17 principles that I read earlier about the environmental justice materialized, all right? They saw what was happening. They saw that Environmental toxins were being dumped in black neighborhoods and low-income neighborhoods with impunity, with blessings from the Reagan and the Bush senior administrations. And so these leaders from black, Latino, Native American, and Asian American communities came together in 1991, and that was, and that was the, the principles were read, were, were actually created and read, and that was actually the first uh, convention of its kind. All right. Now, according to these writers here, the UK has lagged behind the US, believe it or not. Um, you know, once again, uh, there's been widespread pro protest in the UK in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, which was reported by The Guardian. But they're also, the Brits are not dealing with Britain's racist past and what's going on now, and they, including with the environmental movement. Um, it's a fact, the World Health Organization advocate, there was a World Health Organization advocate, and they criticized a public health review in England that omitted the effects of air pollution as a factor in the higher COVID death rates among um, black and other minority groups in the UK, okay? And that World Health Organization advocate for health and air quality, her name is Rosamund Kissy Deborah. And she has campaigned for increased awareness and tighter pollution control. And she did so, this is a sad story. She had a nine-year-old daughter named Ella, and Ella had a rare form of asthma. And because of the poor air quality in London, um, Ella passed away at the age of nine. So she was one of the critics, and there was a public health uh, review in England, and The Guardian reported and, um, you know, once again, she demanded that, you know, air pollution should be considered a factor among these COVID death rates. So Kissy Deborah, you know, said that many of these activists in the minority community, they really feel like they're not given the same level of attention and, and, and credibility, the same platform or resources as white environmental activists. And she was quote saying, quote, I think I have to work harder. I'm not resentful. That's the way it is. Should it be that way? Probably not. Now, income inequality is also a side effect of racism, which plays a part, again, in the, the this basically, this convergence between structural racism and environmental crimes against humanity. Um, Black people in the UK, and that's what Kissy Deborah's talking about, are less affluent than other ethnic groups, 
Subsequently, they're not as able to spare time for meetings or go to protest or lobby actions. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. Um, they also quoted Madhu Krishnan, and this is a professor of African world and comparative literatures at the University of Bristol, and also a climate movement supporter. And Krishnan said that there were a large number of black climate activists in her city, especially through Extinction Rebellion. But even though there were, so, there were quite a few black activists in Extinction Rebellion, the public perception was that it was still a, a white and middle-class phenomenon. And to quote Krishnan, quote, if you look globally at what happened to climate, a disproportionate amount of blame does need to go to the global north, especially the former colonial powers. Environmental reparations are owed, and more thought needs to be given to solutions. The idea of carbon offsets simply reinscribes colonial frameworks, end quote. And that's all very truthful. You know, even we, we, as much fun as it is to blame everything on Donald Trump, you know, the former uh, Obama administration kept pushing the idea, you know, of carbon offsets, carbon credits. And again, all that does is reinforce these colonial situation and frameworks, and we can't, we can no longer do this. So you have now in basically because traditional white affluent environmental groups were kind of tone deaf for a while there to the plight, uh, the double plight of communities of color that also were suffering from these environmental crimes. These new groups, such as Extinction Rebellion, really pushed ahead. And groups like Extinction Rebellion, um, they're more inclusive than, say, Greenpeace. Um, another activist, Dej Agaji, agrees with that assessment. And Agaji was quoted as saying, quote, in recent weeks, the protest movement is really helping. People are more open to listen. It made people realize the U.S. is not the only country with a systemic problem of racism. We need a moment to really think how we relate to one another. The toxic system is something we all have to live with, end quote. A lot of truth to it. Um, there was another a person quoted, Ayanna Johnson, who was a New York-based oceanographer and also the founder of a group called Ocean Collective. And Ocean Collective is a non-for-profit they're, they're basically pushing for social justice, and they really link racial justice to climate justice. Once again, so you see that this theme keeps – this theme is basically interjected throughout the whole thing. And to hear Johnson quote, to the white people who care about maintaining a habitable planet, I need you to be actively anti-racist. I need you to understand that our inequality crisis is intertwined with the climate crisis. If we don't work on both, we will succeed at neither, end quote. Okay, so now we're going to look at, and basically this is a, an interview, uh, and activist Elizabeth Yame-Pierre was interviewed, 360, which is from the Yale School of the Environment. Interesting things coming out of Yale these days for a change. So Elizabeth Yimpierre is an activist. Uh, she's focused on, once again, that same theme, connections between racial injustice or systemic racism and the environment and climate change and really environmental crimes, crimes against humanity. And when you look at it, in, in the, there's also a, a connection between 
the extrajudicial murder of George Floyd, you know, as well as COVID-19. You have to remember George Floyd, the, the officer had his knee on his, on his neck and he was saying, I can't breathe. And Floyd had asthma. And this is, it, it's really symbolic because what's happening to communities of color these days being dumped on with these extra pollutants is collectively they can't breathe. And the, it's the environmental crime compounded by the crime of racism. So we can't separate these two. Yem Pierre is also, she's an important voice. She's been the co-chair of a group called Climate Justice Alliance. And Climate Justice Alliance is a coalition of more than 70 groups. They focus on addressing racial and economic inequities together with climate change. So they're bringing it all together because, let's face it, we're up against, I hate to say it, the very rich and the corporate grounding. And, and basically, they've made a very complex structure that, you can't really address effectively unless you look at all of its complexity. So Yem Pierre was interviewed by Yale Environment 360. She draws, again, a direct line tracing current environmental injustice back to exploitation of resources and back to the origins of such abuses, namely slavery and colonialism. So to quote Yem Pierre, I think about people who got the worst food, the worst health care, the worst treatment, and then when freed, were given lands that were eventually surrounded by things like petrochemical industries, okay? So she sees the fight for against, I won't call it climate change, I'm going to call it global climate devastation. The fight against that is also connected to workers' rights, it's connected to issues of land use, and overall how people are treated. And she has also criticized the mainstream environmental movement, um, and she was quoted saying, quote, it was quote, built by people who cared about conservation, who cared about wildlife, who cared about trees and open space, but didn't care about black people, end quote. Now, I agree with her. And this is one reason why the environmental movement failed to gain traction in lower income and minority communities until now. So Yale Environment 360 reporter asked about the big picture idea that climate change and racial injustice, they share the same roots. They have to be addressed together and that there's no climate action that is also not about racial justice. And the reporter asked, can you describe the links you see connecting these two issues? To quote Jean Pierre, quote, climate change is the result of a legacy of extraction, of colonialism, of slavery. A lot of times when people talk about environmental justice, they go back to the 70s or 60s, but I think about the slave quarters. I think about people who got the worst food, the worst healthcare, the worst treatment, and then were freed were given lands that eventually that were eventually surrounded by things like petrochemical industries. The idea of killing black people or indigenous people, all of that has a long, long history that is centered on capitalism and the extraction of our land and our labor in this country. And end quote. And young Pierre explained that you really can't separate these environmental crimes, as I said before, from slavery, racism, and really what I would call the wholesale level of criminality that comes in part and parcel of unbridled, abusive casino capitalism. So you have to look at this. Young Pierre first came to this issue. It's kind of interesting. She was in her 20s, and she was actually working on the fight against police brutality that was aimed at Puerto, Puerto Ricans at the time. And she was working uh, at the Puerto Rico, I'm sorry, Puerto Rican Legal Defense Fund. 
And a few years later, she realized that if we couldn't breathe, if we couldn't fight for justice, then, you know, it's all for naught anyway. And, um, you know, she pointed out that it's ironic that you see these signs at protest saying, I can't breathe, you know, quoting George Floyd. And, you know, basically the idea when police use chokeholds, people who suffer from either asthma or some other respiratory disease, their breath is literally robbed from them. And so, you know, talking, going back to Eric Garner's um, extrajudicial police murder in 2014, that was from a New York City police officer's chokehold. He had asthma. And the first thing that Jean-Pierre said in her house was, quote, this is an environmental justice issue. So, again, we can look further. When you go back and look at natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Maria, the loss of lives was much heavier in black communities. And that came out of, according to Jean-Pierre, quote, a legacy of neglect and racism. All right. And what you have to realize, it was the same communities, the same communities being most hit and impacted by COVID are also the ones that were hurt by Hurricanes Maria and Katrina and were basically neglected by insurance companies, neglected by George W. Bush, and now COVID being neglected by Donald Trump. There's no mystery here. So the reporter from 360 asked her to draw a connection between climate change and the history of slavery and colonialism. And Jean-Pierre said, well, with slavery, there was a repurposing of the land. You chop down trees, uh, these colonialists disrupted water systems, and the idea was to support the effort to, quote, build a capitalist society and to provide resources for the privileged, using the bodies of black people to facilitate that, end quote. And it's true. And the same with indigenous lands. The indigenous people here in the U.S., their land was taken, and it wasn't just for colonial expansion. It was, they were searching for gold, they were taking down mountains, they were extracting fossil fuels. It's all connected. You have Jim Crow. Again, everything in the government's power to destroy black communities and prevent them from ever rising up and fulfilling their potential. And all these industrial all this industrial effort has also systematically destroyed our climate and it's all related so you know once again you look at the change in, in the weather you look at the hurricanes that are far more disastrous now to quote Jean Pierre the loss of life comes out of a legacy of neglect and racism end quote and it's true they're all connected. And this is an instance where even when she looked at the original environmental movement, which really was a conservation movement, you know, the, the conservatives would make fun of them and call them tree huggers and say, all you care about is, you know, what happens to this unusual, uh, some little uh, bat or something. And they cared about wildlife. And Jean-Pierre said, but they didn't care about black people. And that's true. They didn't care about the poor. That's true. And so there is racism in the original conservation environmental movement. And now it's being remedied. 
So, you know, she was asked, how do you fight for climate action that's also working hand-in-hand with the fight for racial justice? What steps do you take? What policies? Jean-Pierre was quoted, quote, with the Green New Deal, for example, we said that it wasn't a Green New Deal unless it was centered on frontline solutions and on ensuring that frontline leadership would be able to move resources to their communities to deal with things like infrastructure and food insecurity. When that happens, we'll be able to move the dial much more efficiently. In New York, for example, we passed the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which is aggressive legislation that looks at how you move resources to frontline communities and how you invest in those communities. Nationally, we need to be looking at stopping pipelines, reducing carbon, but also reducing other pollutants, end quote. She talks about how we need to focus on regenerative economies, creating community cooperatives and different types of economic systems, maybe with barter. And when I look at what she's saying right now, what she's saying right here, especially not only dealing with infrastructure, but dealing with things like food insecurity. You know, we've had environmental protests here in St. Louis as well, and there were some young people and God bless them, they meant well. They had come from the suburbs. They were from a private school, fairly affluent, and their hearts were in the right place. But they were saying everybody needs to become vegan because raising cows with factory farms increases our carbon footprint. Well, that may be true. But the one thing that they didn't understand is that a lot of lower-income families live in what are called food deserts. And a food desert means there aren't hardly any choices other than junk food and hamburgers. There just isn't. And they didn't understand the connection between the the structural racism and the poverty and the food deserts and what the environmental movement, more affluent movement, was trying to tell people what to do. And we have to build basically an environmental movement that takes all of this into account, all right? Not everybody can afford to buy an electric car. It's not realistic. We have to find ways where everybody can benefit. So young Pierre went on explaining how, um, you know, they went back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s where typically there would be one leader people would follow. The movement now is far more diverse, and it really is, um, decentralized. And so she gave an example of, you know, the reporter asked her, how do you, you know, can you give an idea of a transition to a low carbon future and how does that work hand in hand with anti-racism efforts? Well, and young Pierre said, first of all, a fair transition not only moves us away from fossil fuel or a fossil fuel economy to local livable economies, but there are different, what you call economies of scale. And it's not just about energy, it's also healthy food, all right? Um, And to quote her, she said, quote, the word justice here is important because for a long time people would talk about sustainability, that you could have sustainability without justice. And the climate movement focused on reducing carbon but didn't really care about other pollutants, okay? Climate activists talk about moving at a big grand scale, and we talk about moving at a local scale. It goes on to say a just transition looks at the process of how we get there, and so it looks, and not just the outcomes, which is something that the environmentalists look at, but it looks at the process. Workers' rights, land use, 
how people are treated, whether the process of creating materials that take us to a carbon neutral environment is toxic, and whether it affects the host community where it's being built. It looks at all those different kind of things, end quote. So then Jean Pierre gave an example. In New York City, there were advocates and they, were, they wanted to bring in offshore wind as an energy source. The thing was this, in order to build the device, the pieces came from Europe and then they were gonna be assembled in New York City. But the pieces were gonna come in these big freighter ships. And the ships use diesel fuel. When they get into New, when they dock in New York City, they have to dock, park themselves on a waterfront. And the waterfront is in the middle of an environmental justice community. And all that pollution is spewing into that local community so that that climate solution becomes an environmental justice problem. So you're, you know, you might be reducing carbon eventually, but you're dumping, as she put it, tons of nitrogen oxides and sulfur oxides and what she called PM 2.5 particles, quote, the lungs of the, of the host community, end quote, which is true. And that is where the traditional environmental movement has been a bit tone deaf. They just don't understand. So there needs to be a way to maybe, she said, electrify the waterfront so the ships can plug in while they're parked and they're not burning diesel, okay? You, you can't just solve one problem by creating another and dumping on, again, another low-income minority, you know, community of color. You just can't. And so those are the things she's talking about. So to quote her again, she said, quote, a climate activist will be like, okay, we need offshore wind, right? That's it. But a climate justice activist will be like, okay, let's look at it a little closer and let's figure out what the process looks like and how we can engage in remediation to make sure we are not only producing carbon, but we're also reducing co-pollutants. Let's make sure that the people that are hired are hired locally, end quote. And it just makes perfect sense. There's always been this disconnect. I, I grew up in a low-income family, and there's always been this disconnect between the traditional environmental activists and those of us that came from lower-income and minority communities. Uh, because, again, there are assumptions that just don't work. And so she also talks about other efforts bring those helps, excuse me, help solve the two problems. So she pointed out how in Sunset Park, which is in Brooklyn, um, she runs the Latino Community Group, and they just launched their first community-owned solar cooperative in the state. Okay, they want renewable energy, but they really can't afford it unless they all kind of work together. And this is something where it's a good example of that cooperative bringing lower in lower cost sustainable energy to a lower income uh, community. And you know, to quote her again, she said these environmental groups have to get out of their silos and out of their dated thinking. End quote. And with the cooperative, the, the local community actually owns the utility. They own the energy source. And so they can get it reduced cost. They can hire people locally to build it. And this is where you have the issue of climate justice working hand-in-hand -hand with the community instead of victimizing the community. So this is something that is something that has to happen. So... She goes on, and, and really, this is an instance where Jean-Pierre is really talking about 
fundamental change in the environmental movement. And, and she's right. So now we have another article. And this one was written by Adele Thomas and Rihanna Haynes, Black Lives Matter, the link between climate change and racial justice. And, you know, to quote them, it says, in any crisis, it's the poorest, <coughs> excuse me, and most vulnerable that suffer the greatest impact. What does Black Lives Matter have to do with climate change? Everything. Adele Thomas and Rihanna Haynes outlined the linkages between environmental justice and racial justice, end quote. So once again, you know, they start with kind of the background, the many videos and accounts of just vile police violence all over the country, whether it's, whether the video came from NBC News or CNN, and then the protest, you know, people of all different ethnicities are coming together, you know, they're demanding that we defund the police, and, you know, so the question was asked, what does Black Lives Matter have to do with climate change? And, you know, again, it's the poorest, most vulnerable that, su- that suffer the greatest impact of, again, we shouldn't call it climate change, it's climate global climate devastation. And, you know, again, once again, they mentioned the COVID-19 statistics. All right. And according to the Brookings Institute, hardly a bastion of liberal thought, they um, basically did a study and they found that black and Native American people are dying at disproportionately higher rates during the COVID, um, COVID situation. Excuse me. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, The Guardian did an article and they quoted uh, they quoted Patrice Cullors and I know I'm saying this wrong. UC Nguvu, who are members of the Black Lives Matter movement, and they quoted them as saying, "Quote: Racism is endemic to global inequality." This means that those most affected and killed by climate change are black and poor people, end quote. And it's true. And that's why the calls for racial equity and climate justice, they have to work together. There's also direct linkages uh, that were basically reported by greenaction.org and racial justice. Again, uh, climate racism reported by the New York Times. Um, these have been areas of research and activism, um, you know, again, and they're based, they work together because when you look at the history of the United States, we had racist policies that went on for decades, especially with residential segregation, all right? So, of course, when polluters wanted to do- dump toxic waste, do you really think they were going to dump the toxic waste in the very expensive white suburb? No. They were going to dump and did dump it in black communities where the legal system just didn't care. That's a fact. Have this situation here in the United States. Disproportionate percentages of people of color not only are dying from COVID, but they also live in places that, again, are polluted with toxic waste. Again, reported by The Guardian in 2019. All right. And that also led to higher incidence of cancer, asthma, degraded cardiac function, and high blood pressure. And here in St. Louis, I would add to it lead poisoning, especially in children. You know, in another career, before I did this journalist thing, I was an educator in St. Louis Public. 
and I was a speech and language pathologist. And I remember in the early 90s, we had certain zip codes in St. Louis that had incredibly high rates of lead poisoning. There was testing conducted. And in some of these all-black areas that were certain zip codes, approximately eight of every 10 children had some level of lead poisoning that had been documented. I remember screening for speech and language development, a kindergarten class one day, of these babies that should have been perfectly normal, five, six years old, out of 50 children, only about nine of them passed the screening. Most of them were functioning in terms of communication, like anywhere from a child that was 18 months to three years of age. I remember getting in my car and I locked the door and I just sat there and then I just cried. I just, I just couldn't believe it. And when I found out about the lead poisoning area, you knew these children had been damaged and that the city government, even at a local level, did not care. That is a special type of evil. So once again, um, black communities are disproportionately dumped on. They're in areas where, once again, there are climate hazards again, reported by The Guardian. Uh, Even with Hurricane Katrina, there was unequal flood protection reported by Green America in New Orleans. Okay? There were a lot of black neighborhoods that couldn't get flood protection. Uh, Frankly, here in St. Louis, there were a lot of black neighborhoods that couldn't get insurance for their homes because it was redlined. So we need to start facing this This legacy of injustice. So Black Lives Matter isn't just about police brutality. That's a big part of it. But it's about multiple injustices. And when people get angry and they say, oh, that's all lives matter. No. Black Lives Matter, what they're really saying is Black Lives Matter. And it has to be said because in the United States, for too long, Black Lives didn't matter at all. And the links between racial and climate injustice are seen around the world. And this, and another fact, very simply, globally, this is a direct quote. Quote, in the climate change sphere, it is well understood that those who will suffer the most from climate change impacts have contributed the least to the global crisis. End quote. And that's really speaking about the developed world and, the, and what they call the undeveloped world, where basically, especially in Latin America, where Western powers go to steal resources. We've talked about this before in this program. Chevron's a good example. They dump, they pollute, they poison the environment. These people are suffering more so that people in the affluent West can have an individual card for every member of the family. So the junior, the minute he turns 16, will get a brand new sports card. That's what it's about. The fact that there isn't potable or drinkable water in those communities and babies are dying of cancer that shouldn't be is irrelevant to the politicians here, whether they're Democrat or Republican, because they all get funding from the same corporate polluters. Again, 
you can, and the fact that in Latin America, these are people of color, for the races, that's just an extra plus. You can't separate environmental racism from climate, from climate, in, climate global justice, injustice, okay? You just can't. And it's also, this is also uh, looking at the, the history of colonialism, all right, where Western colonial powers, as I said before, went in, stole resources, polluted, took what treasures they wanted, and dumped on the community that they invaded. It's really that simple. There's enough black climate experts that have been speaking about this, but then on top of that, according to NPR, they have to deal with that additional headache of trying to operate as a professional within racist professional structures. And that was reported by NPR just this June in a piece called The Inseparable Link Between Climate Change and Racial Justice. Okay, Because again, there is this, whites just tend to think that they know more. They don't, but somehow that magic melanin keeps coming into play. That's what it is, it's magic melanin. So we're looking at this, this situation, and what we have to realize in our remaining time is this. I threw a lot at you, but you can't separate structural or systemic racism from basically environmental crimes against humanity. They work hand in hand. And now with COVID, once again, we're seeing how it plays, it comes into play. We just are. Um, you know, you go anywhere nowadays and what you see, um, whether it's on Facebook or LinkedIn, Twitter, you, your neighborhood, you will see people put up in response to Black Lives Matter, they'll put up Blue Lives Matter or All Lives Matter. And they get very touchy. And again, what they fail to comprehend, the fact that communities of color had to speak up and had to say, yes, Black Lives Matter, is shameful in and of itself. Because in this country, historically, it is painfully clear that Black Lives have not mattered at all. And when you say all lives matter, once again, that's a way of erasing structural racism. And those of us that are considered as white allies, we cannot allow that any longer. We just can't. You know, I taught in an impoverished district, school district that was majority black and brown. And for 30 years, I personally witnessed how these children started life really at a terrible disadvantage because of the pollutants in their, in their neighborhoods. They were perfectly normal children. But the asthma levels, every kid had asthma. I've never seen so much asthma in all my days. And, and again, I know I'm venting right now, but once again, you cannot separate structural or systemic racism from environmental injustice or environmental crimes against humanity. They go hand in hand. They just do. And as I've said before, communities of color, especially the black community who gets the worst of it, they really are that political canary in a coal mine. And I'll tell you that story once again. 
back in the days when there wasn't really any real machinery, miners would lower it into a mine in a little bucket, and they never knew if there was going to be air in the newest mine shaft. So before they went down, they lowered the bucket with a canary. And if the canary, if the cage came back and the canary was still alive, they knew there was air for them to breathe and they could proceed. But if the canary came back dead, well, they knew. That was their early warning system. Communities of color and especially the black community are our early warning system against these corporate, against corporate greed, against these environmental crimes against humanity, and against, yes, white supremacy and this ever-growing neo-Nazism that we see in this day and age. And this is, anybody who claims to be a decent person, whether you're a good Christian, good Jew, good Muslim, whatever, if you see yourself as a decent person, then you cannot any longer ignore the damage done by structural racism and environmental crimes against humanity and how the two work hand in hand. You just can't. You can no longer basically turn a deaf ear or a blind eye. You just can't. And so we're looking at this. We, we, we have to deal with this issue. We just do. Because eventually the powers that be will turn on that white middle class. And it's a shame that we have to appeal to people based on their own self-interest. That just shows a lack of maturity and moral growth that is disgusting. But unfortunately, that's the reality we deal with. The fact is, our brothers and sisters of color are just that, our brothers and sisters. And they have been abused for hundreds of years now. And we can no longer allow this abuse, the systemic abuse, to continue. Elevating one or two people of color like Barack Obama does not get the job done. It just doesn't. We are not post-racial. We need to stop that silly talk and understand that we are at a crossroads in this country. We have a madman, in my opinion, in the Oval Office who, again, in my opinion, is a white supremacist and a neo-Nazi. He has no intention of obeying the law. He has no intention of respecting the vote. And he will do whatever he thinks he can get away with. And his supporters not only do not believe in in climate change or global climate devastation, which is what it really is, but they don't believe in justice. They are holding on to their white supremacy just by the skin of their teeth because that's all that matters to them, and this has to stop. So I'm hoping and praying that the more traditional environmental groups will sit down with these, with these new environmental groups, these more diverse groups, and these white envir- affluent environmentalists Take a little advice. Talk less and listen more. Because these communities of color know what they're talking about. And you need their cooperation. 
You just do. We have five more minutes left. And again, um, I just, I can't even begin to address the level of disgust I have when I see whites just disregarding this, okay, making excuses. Because again, environmental crimes against humanity hurt impoverished communities and communities of color the most. And basically that statement, those who will suffer the most from climate change impacts have contributed least to the global crisis, which is true. How dare we as a country, a wealthy country, demand that poor countries not develop, that they don't, they don't have as many cars, that they cut down, when we're not willing to do the same ourselves? You know, we, we just, we have to get rid of this elitism because at the end of the day, we only have one planet. And it's evidently clear we either all sink or we all swim. Unfortunately, there are too many people, especially in the affluent white community and the political class, that don't believe that. And I know I'm venting a bit. They believe that they will swim even if they have to drown anybody else that gets in their way. Well, I refuse to do that. I don't care what anybody says or what we have to face together. We either all sink or we all swim, but I'll be damned if we throw anybody overboard. So with that, I'm going to say good night. And again, I pray that some of you look into some of these, these resources, join the movement, and decide that we're all going to pull together. Good night, and God bless. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.